We're going to be in John 15 today. And uh, before we get into really anything to do with the message, I just have to tell you about this uh, conference that I went to on Thursday and Friday. It had to do with small groups and was extremely effective and very well done. And I really enjoyed myself. But in my small group, we actually practiced some of the some of the theories and things. In my small group were two sweet Methodist ladies, each of which were over 90 years old. They are from a Methodist church in Cahokia, which, as you know, is very much a trend, what they call a transitioned community, uh, ethnically, and uh, brings a lot of uh, you know, different environment and things like that. And these two ladies were like, we know, we're not moving. That's where God put us. And we've got to figure out how to reach people that are here now and not people that were here before, I was blown away. And at the end, we did this exercise where we encouraged one another and things like that. It was really cool. And um, I said to both of them, this is my encouragement for you. You make me want to go back home and tell every one of our senior citizens, how dare you think you are done? If you've got breath in your body, God isn't finished with you in this life yet. And I just had to share that because they're remarkable ladies with a heart for their community, and it really blew me away. Uh, Evelyn and Marianne are their names, and I'm sure they would appreciate prayers as they go back and continue to uh, figure out how to minister to their their community and and express the heart that God's given. (laughs) This is, you know what silly bands are, right? My daughter gave me this one before I came up here today. It's in the shape of a cross. And uh, I just wanted to brag. So, um, John 5, verse 1. Let's read the text first. After this, there was a feast of the Jews, and Jesus went up to Jerusalem. Now there is in Jerusalem by the Sheep Gate a pool in Aramaic called Bethesda, which has five roofed colonnades. In these lay a multitude of invalids, blind, lame, and paralyzed. One man was there who had been an invalid for 38 years. When Jesus saw him lying there and knew that he had already been there a long time, he said to him, Do you want to be healed? The sick man man answered him, Sir, I have no one to put me into the pool when the water is stirred up. And when I am going, another steps down before me. Jesus said to him, Get up, take up your bed, and walk. And at once the man was healed, and he took up his bed and walked. Now that day was the Sabbath, so Jesus said to the man who had been healed, uh, the Jews rather said to the man who had been healed, it is the Sabbath and it's not lawful for you to take up your bed. But he answered them, the man who healed me, that man said to me, take up your bed and walk. They asked him, who is the man who said to you, take up your bed and walk? Now the man who had been healed did not know who it was, for Jesus had withdrawn. As there was a crowd in the place, afterward, Jesus found him in the temple and said to him, see, you are well. Sin no more, so that nothing worse may happen to you. And the man went away and told the Jews that it was Jesus who had healed him. Father God, Lord, we thank you for your word. We thank you, Father, that in this we find you revealed to us. We ask you by your spirit. I I ask you, Lord, help me to handle this properly today. And help us to see there's so much more going on here than meets the eye. I pray, Lord, that you will help me handle it wisely. And that you will... Change us, not because of me or even great music, but we meet with God through the Word and by the Holy Spirit this morning. So I ask you to do that in Jesus' name and for your glory, Father. Amen. As I laid out the different things that I might address today, and I had, I had probably 12 or 14 different uh, passages that I was thinking about from my journals and stuff, and 
Uh, a little over a week ago, I talked to a friend of mine that I haven't spoken to in some time. Uh, he's not here, so I feel like I can probably share. His name is Brian, and we have been in ministry together, and he's a dear friend. And um, I won't go into detail, but I, enough to say that his life is forever changed and his ministry is destroyed through what I believe is no fault of his own. And, um, man, um, if there was a person that I know right now, particularly in ministry, who could say, what is the point, it would be Brian. And when I, after I talked to him, I came back later that day and immediately was taken to this. This was on my list. I was taken to this. Because what I wrote in my journal, and the only thing I had on my list was the text, John 5, 1-15, with the question, what's the point? We're going to see. That's kind of what this guy was saying. But what we, what we see here really is a, is a beautiful story of Jesus healing a man with uh, an invalid condition who had been there for a very long time. It's, it's powerful. It demonstrates Christ's authority. I mean, with a word from Christ, the man was healed. And when we see Jesus meeting meeting man here in his need and working miraculously. So it's a, it's a great story. However, if we're not careful, we can make the mistake of thinking that this event was about the man's physical healing. We can reduce Jesus in this story and in our lives to kind of a miracle-working gumball machine, and we'll miss some things that we really need to grapple with here, the underlying motives behind what's going on, the real reason for the healing and what it can mean for us. I will say that this, this may not be uh, a peppy sermon. Um, and as I often say when I, when I stand up to, to talk about a text, I'm still kind of in the middle of figuring out and, and, and wrestling with it and, and figuring out what God wants me to unpack from his, this. But honestly, I've come to the place where I hope I'm never done with that. I hope that I, I hope I never become so arrogant as to think that I've arrived at a complete understanding of God's word. I, I always want to be malleable and teachable, and I want to encounter a text that I've read many times before and see something, uh, see something more by the Holy Spirit. Not necessarily something new and different, and risk altering first order, crucial doctrines, which we see that quite often, but. Something more of the mystery of the things of God and his word and what it should mean in my life. I say that to let you know that if I seem to wrestle with how to say something, it's, it's because I'm still wrestling with it. And by God's grace, I always will be. Now, as we go back through the text, there's some important things to note that I hope is going to help us see some things. And I'm going to assign points as a good poetic preacher does. Uh, but hopefully it's not going to be sound too gimmicky. It's just a way for us to break it down. And unpack some things and, and, and get some things, but I, I don't want it to be gimmicky, but these were some thoughts that kind of struck me. And I will tell you also with that same thought of just wrestling, I've never had to fight as hard to get a manuscript, a sermon on paper and my thoughts out there. I really wrestled with this one. Um, so here we go. We're going to jump in back at verse, back in the early, and early part of the text here. And there was in Jerusalem by the Sheep Gate a pool in Aramaic called Bethesda which has five roofed colonnades, and in these lay a multitude of invalids, blind, lame, and paralyzed. Now, just as a side note, before we really get into the core, that will hopefully encourage your confidence in God's Word. 
The, this site, this, this physical site, is considered a major modern validation of biblical history because the uh, mention of the five roofed colonnades or, or areas or porches around was an odd archaeological feature that for a long time we had no record of and no evidence of, to the point that some biblical scholars back in the 1800s uh, and up to, we still have some of them, say that John made it up to illustrate some spiritual points. But in the 18, late 1800s and the 1950s, 60s and there, in archaeological excavations in Jerusalem, there were two sites found that had large rectangular pools, kind of deep pools, with roofed walls around it, with one dividing down the middle, resulting in five roofed colonnades in two sites. So hopefully that is just a side note to encourage your faith in the historical validity of God's word. This is the real deal, and we can trust it. You with me? Okay. Now, another thing that I feel like I need to point out, because I know we have multiple translations in here today, and somebody may have noticed that verse 4, I didn't read verse 4, if you have a, uh, some other translations. There's a, there's a reason for this, and I want to handle this carefully. The reason, like I'm reading the ESV, the reason for the absence of verse 4 in the main text, in the ESV it's in the footnotes, is because in the earliest Greek manuscripts, you've heard Dwayne mention some other instances of this, in the earliest Greek manuscripts, that verse is not present. Then the, and the way it reads with verse 4 is, verse 3 would be, In these lay a multitude of invalids, blind, lame, and paralyzed, waiting for the movement of the water. For an angel of the Lord went down at certain seasons into the pool and stirred the water. Whoever stepped in first after the stirring of the water was healed of whatever disease he had. Now, the reason... that, Of course, we, we, we said that it's, uh, it's not in the earliest Greek manuscripts. And... You don't need, I mean, we have this all through the New Testament, and Dwayne's wrestled with this before. Here's what I think happened here. If you go, if you read it without verse 4, and you're a Gentile, and you get to verse 7, now we've read this many times, most of you have been in church for a while, you know what he means when he says the water is stirred up. But if a Gentile reader reads this the first time, I have no one to put me into the pool when the water is stirred up. We're going, what does that mean? So it was probably put in as a point of commentary to explain what was going on. To explain that this was a place where God expected people to work. Excuse me, people expected God to work. It might work the other way too, but people expected God to work. Okay, And it doesn't need to cast any doubt on God's word because it's not contradictory. It's explanatory to what's going on. So I, just, I had to kind of wrestle with that. and Maybe you had that question. If not, then ignore everything I just said for the last two minutes. The reason why verse 4, however, is still very important is because it helps us see what's going on here. Okay? Because the first point that I wrote down here is this place was a place of brokenness. The pool of Bethesda here was a place of brokenness. And that verse helps us to see why. Not only did broken people come here, discarded people come to this place, they came expecting something from God. Okay? You with me? This is a place where people came who had nowhere else to go. Discouraged people came here, discarded people came here, despairing people came here, and they came seeking something from God. They came seeking a miracle, a work from God. Place of brokenness. This is how we should come here, to this place. This is how we should come to church. Broken, maybe a better way to say it is empty of self-righteousness, emptied of self-sufficiency, emptied of self-anything, 
completely devoid of our own will and agenda, but totally open to what God wants to do in your life. You should come to church expecting God to work in your heart and your life. Now, this doesn't mean that you can't come to church happy. Okay, don't, don't make that mistake. It doesn't mean that you can't come to church from a place of joy. But when you come in, man, God is good. Man, life is great. I got my act together. I sure hope God works in their life today. You are missing the point. It also doesn't mean that you have to come to church with your life falling apart around you in a place of catastrophe for God to work. But rather we should come with, again, with no agenda of our own, expecting to hear from and experience God totally open. Church should be a place of brokenness in that we are emptied of ourselves and expecting God to work. Okay? So a place of brokenness here is where we should be here. Now, in the place of brokenness, we find what I've called a, a person in hopelessness. Look at verse 5. One man who was there had been an invalid for 38 years. It struck me yesterday, I'm 38 years old. Thir- I'm 38. This man, just think about 38 years, this guy had been unable to move. He had been crippled by this pool... For longer than many in his time had even been alive. The life expectancy in this time was what? Late 30s, early 40s? Longer than many people had lived, this guy had been sitting by this pool. In all probability, we know or we believe that the man's condition was not of his own making. Many believe that it was a palsy of some kind, cerebral palsy, which would account for the lifelong condition, the severity of the condition, which was considerable, as we'll see in a minute. But you have to also keep in mind the assumption of the Jewish people who would see this man. They would observe this man crippled and begging, and they would assume that either he had sinned or someone in his ancestry had sinned, causing his malady. So not only was he physically cast out, he was socially and emotionally cast out. This guy was in about as rock bottom a place as you could get. Coming close. Some of you here are here today and you feel like this man felt. You, you may not have a physical condition that limits what you can do, but your circumstances around you are such that you feel hopeless. You have given up or you want to give up. And you wonder, as you look over your situation, like this man said, what is the point What's the point of continuing to to try to do right, to make things right that I've messed up, to fix my marriage, to beat this disease, to rescue my kids, to overcome this addiction, to defeat this sin? What's the point? Because I've tried before and I've failed and I'm just going to fail again. There There is good news coming for you in just a minute. So hang with me. But for right now, I want to tell you Something that, the, that is the opposite of what the enemy has tried to tell you. Come in right here. You are not alone. You are not alone. Don't make the mistake of letting the enemy convince you that you are the only one to, to have gone through what you're going through. Now, I will admit that it's hard to grasp and remember when you're in the valley. It's hard to get that. But you've got to know and let the light of the gospel today show you you are not there alone. You know how I know? You know how I know that? Look at verse 6. When Jesus saw him lying there and knew that he had been there a long time. 
Now read it again and stop here. When Jesus saw him lying there and knew. Jesus knew exactly who this man was. He knew what his condition was. He knew the man because he made the man. He knew why he was there. This man was about to bring much glory to Jesus. And so can you. Not because of you. Don't make that mistake either. Jesus knows. He knows where you are. He knows you because he made you. And I just want you to grasp that right now. You are not in your situation alone. Have you ever been in the middle of a crowded room and felt completely alone? Raise your hand. Be honest. Don't act all spiritual like you don't know what I'm talking about. Most of us would have our hand up. You are not alone. So we have a place of brokenness in which we find a person in hopelessness. And here, Jesus asked what I've called a very peculiar question. Verse 6, when Jesus saw him lying there and knew that he had been there a long time, he said to him, do you want to be healed? What a question to ask a guy sitting in that situation. 38 years, everybody there is invalid in some form, and he strolls past the ball and stops this guy, you want to be healed? Of course he wants to be healed, right? Or did he? We'll come back to that in a second. Just, just hang on to that. There's something I, I really want to uh, bring out here. And a couple of my band of brothers guys that meet on Tuesday nights, Matt Oshel had his keyword study Bible, and we were digging in this, in this Tuesday night. A couple of things jumped out at us that, was, that, was, that were pretty cool. The Greek word here for the word healed is the word hugies. Sometimes it's spelled with a Y, hygies. Hugies is more accurate. But from that word, we get the word hygiene. It means, uh, it means sound, it means whole, it means holistically well. And it implies much, much more than the physical. This is the first glimpse we have here that what's going on here, Jesus is wanting to address much more than the man's physical condition. Okay, We must not confuse what's really going on here. The man's physical condition is not all, is really not what Jesus wants to work on. Your circumstance, although it needs Christ, is not really what Jesus wants to address. Do not reduce, just hang with me, we're unpacking. Do not reduce the healing that we're talking about and that's being addressed here. Do not limit it to the physical realm. Jesus wasn't really asking the man if he wanted him to fix his legs. He was saying, do you want to be made whole, complete, sound? Perfectly and completely well. Even if you don't understand really what that means, do you want that? The word carries much more weight than the physical. Okay? This is the question that Jesus Christ has for you today. This is the question. Do you want to be healed even if that healing doesn't come how you expect? Now, this is tough. I'll give you this. This is a not an easy question to answer. Do you want to be made whole, complete, perfectly, completely, holistically well? This is the question that Christ presents to him. And to this peculiar question, in order to get a P word in here, I had to figure one out here. We're going to have what we call a passive response. Because on the surface it does seem kind of passive. I told you guys, there's not going to be a lot of amens today. and this, It's coming. Verse 7, the sick man answered him, 
Sir, I have no one to put me into the pool when the water is stirred up. And while I'm going, another steps down before me. I've heard and read some different takes on the tone of voice that's applied here. And and one was that it could be kind of like a sarcastic reply. Do I want to be healed? Well, of course I want to be healed. Why would I still be here by this stupid pool for 38 years if I didn't want to be healed? Here's the thing, though. Not everyone wants to be healed. Can you think of any reason why this guy might not want to be healed? Wanted to be healed? How about a cool place in the shade by the pool? How about alms? Financial donations given to the poor. This guy had probably received alms, financial donations, for 38 years. If he is healed, he has to go to work. His entire life changes. When he receives what Christ is about to give him, his life will change and he will be responsible for it. You see, victims incur benefits, and some rightly. But there can come a point where the benefits become the reason for remaining a victim. Laziness in our culture sometimes seems to have rewards. Now, before you Pharisees like me start nodding our heads a little too briskly, let's remember that there are legitimate needs out there to meet. And that's part of what God specifically has called Dorisville to do. And he's called us to meet needs and not judge hearts. That's not our job. That's his job. But to be honest, brutally, and there's no way I'm trying to... Let me do this in love. Some of, some of us, some of you, like being the victim. Some of you like your place in the shade by the pool and misery and begging for alms a little too much. Some of you like the pats on the back and the encouraging words you get, oh, poor you, a little too much. Some of you like the weepy prayers of others over you a little too much and you want to hang on to those. Some of you like complaining about your spouse or your boss or your financial situation or your relationships or your health over and over and over because as long as you're a victim... You don't have to do any self-examination and you don't have to take any responsibility. You have to ask yourself from this story, am I really ready for Christ to work in my life? Am I really ready? So that's one take of the guy's response. Another one that it might not have been an excuse. And this is where I gravitate, actually. I had to unpack that. I felt like I had to. But this is, this is where I lean. Not an excuse this is but or a sarcastic defense. Of course I want to be healed, but don't do it but rather an expression, a real expression of his, of his hopelessness. I mean, he's tried and tried to get into the water, right? And he, has, he really does have no one to help him, right? Right? So he really does come to the point, yes, I'd like to be healed, but, but what's the point? Maybe this is closer to where you really are. Maybe your excuses really are your expression of hopelessness, and you just don't know any other way to express it. Some of us are there, And the rest of us need to get there. Remember that Christ is dealing with much more than the physical realm here. Okay? Not if you're with me. He's dealing with much more than the physical. He's about to change this man's life. And this man needed to be ready for that. And the way you get primed for a transformative work in your Christ, of Christ in your life, is to get to where this guy was, where you have nothing to rely on but him. You're actually there already spiritually. If you've never accepted Christ, you just need to realize it because you're dead. Matthew Henry says, you see, our response to this question is very important. 
do you want to be healed? Our response to that question is very important because God sees our heart. And in our answer to that question, we see, and he sees more importantly, if we're really ready, if we're primed for a work of Christ, of Jesus. Matthew Henry says in his commentary that Christ delights to help the helpless and he will have mercy on whom he wills. If we want Jesus Christ to work a transformative work in our lives, we must come to a place of hopelessness. If we have any reliance on anything other than Christ and only what he can do, then he will not be able to fully work in him. Our hope must be in him. For that to happen, we must be completely hopeless hopeless in anything else. Maybe a better way to say it is, is, is this. We must come to a place where we know spiritually, physically, in every way, we can rely on nothing but him. Psalm 51.17 says that a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart, these God will not despise or reject. That kind of heart, God always responds to. Here's another question, another way to think about this. If if the man really was physically unable to to, to get into into the pool and he really had no one else to help him and somehow he managed to roll off the side and into the water, what would have happened? What do you think would have happened? He'd have drowned. Do not make the mistake of thinking, though, however, that, yeah, that, that, that guy, he's, he's, in really, he's in really bad shape. I'm not crippled. I'm not as needy as him. Remember that Jesus was not dealing, ultimately, with the physical. What makes you think that because your circumstances are not as bad as his, that you have any better position before God than he did? If he tried to fix himself, he dies. If you try to fix yourself, you die. Only in Christ can you be forgiven and restored and made whole. Jesus plus nothing equals everything. Jesus plus nothing equals everything. Ephesians 2, 8 and 9. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and this not of your own doing. It is the gift of God, not as a result of works, so that no one may boast. For those of you who are there, and you know you're there, turn to Christ, and he will work. For those of you who are not there and are hanging on to yourself, let go of your pride and your self-reliance, because until you do, Christ has not and cannot truly work a transformative work in your life. It's in Christ alone. Not in Christ alone plus my kind of goodness. It didn't work. This guy was primed for Jesus to work in him and through him. And the reason why many of us have never really truly experienced Christ's work in your heart, not really, not truly, is because you're simply not ready or willing. Do you really want Jesus to work in your life? Do you really want Jesus to work in your life? Do you really want Jesus to work in your life? Then give up. Give up your trying. Give up your failing. Give up your religion. Give up your rebellion. Give up your pride. Give up your sin and repent. And turn to Jesus and let him save you by grace through your faith. The ultimate issue here, we're actually going to see confirmed in a minute, is... is It's not our circumstances, it's our eternity. Okay, let's recap, keep everything kind of in order. We find a place of brokenness. 
where we are at church, where we should come to church as, in which we find a person in hopelessness in self to which we must get. We see a peculiar question, do you want to be healed wholly, which we're confronted with. We have the passive response of what's the point that reveals our heart. And to this answer, Jesus gave a powerful command. Get up, take up your bed, and walk. And he did. This is another one of those cool moments we saw in, in, in the Greek. The Greek here for uh, get up is a gere. You get up. And among its meanings, we find these. To restore from nothing. To cause to exist. Here's my favorite. To raise to life from death. Oh, come on! It's like Jesus was, he was giving him the command to this guy like he was saying to a dead man, Get up! He was saying to this guy, Get up, dead man, and walk away from this place of brokenness. Get up, dead man, get your stuff, and take off. Now, the point here is very simple, and it's twofold. First, Jesus is calling you today. He may be, and he's calling you to give up trying to do life and faith and religion and everything on your own and come to him to find life. And you already know he's calling you. You call to him from your circumstances to get you out of your circumstances. He's calling you from death to life. And you know he's calling you. The second point is that when Jesus calls, answer. You better answer. When he speaks, you obey. When he when he issues an invitation, respond, because this might be the only chance you get. Notice that he walked by a whole multitude of invalids to go to that one guy. You might be the guy, the 38-year-old man today. And if he comes to you and calls your heart today, answer him. He is not a spiritual guru. He's not a wise man or a smart guy whose advice we should take. He is the king whose commands are to be obeyed. And if he's calling you today, please respond. Some of you, you already know he's calling you today. And you know that the, what, where he's calling you to, the command he's giving you has little to do with your circumstances. He's calling and you need to respond. You need to relinquish your life, repent, and give circumstances to him. He's saying to you, get up, dead man. Get your stuff and walk away from your place of sin and brokenness. Now, I will be honest, this next point, I don't know, I'm just going to do it. Because as usual, the Pharisees make an appearance. And for the sake of our organization, we're going to keep them in and we're going to call them the pious observers. On the day, on that day was the Sabbath, so the Jews said to the man who had been healed, it is the Sabbath and it's not lawful for you to take up your bed. Give me a break. Oh, the only the only the only thing I'll say here is that the Pharisees, again, totally miss what God's doing. They completely reveal their only stupid, their own stupidity. And in this case, they pretty much get ignored by Jesus. Application. Those of you who God is calling and God has called you to salvation and you want to stand up and shout and you're worried about what. Pharisee number one will think, ignore them. 
Now, to those of you, now first of all, let me, let me, before I say this next thing, let me, let me say it. And the reason I get so about this is I see this in my own life and I hate it. Those of us who have grown up in church, you need to get over yourself and realize this is what you're vulnerable to. We are particularly vulnerable to Phariseeism. And I see it in my own life and I want to rip it out. And I'm asking God, and little by little, He's working on it. So this is what I'll say. If you're a Pharisee, and you're arrogant enough to know you're a Pharisee, and be proud to be a Pharisee, and you think it's your job to fix people up when they walk through the door with as much love as I can muster, shut up! That didn't get that much of a clap, did it? (laughs) Okay, it's not healthy for me to stay there. We're moving on. We have the place of brokenness, a person in hopelessness, a peculiar question, a passive response, a powerful command, the pious observers, which we're going to kind of kick to the curb, and then we have a paramount clarification. And I say paramount because this is where we see what's really at stake. This is where we, this is all important clarification with this. This is why the next few verses are in here, because without this, this story might not have been in here, because this is where we see what's really important. The real reason behind the whole episode. Jesus goes looking for the man, and he points this out in verse 13. Now, the man who had been healed... I'm sorry, go to verse 14. Afterward, Jesus found him in the temple and said to him, See, you are well. Sin no more, so that nothing worse may happen to you. Jesus finds the man. Jesus finds the man. And he says to him... What I just did for you, what I just did back there, has nothing to do with your legs. That was about your heart. That was about your heart. Now that I've done that, now you need to repent of your sin so that you don't encounter something much worse than being stuck crippled by a pool. Are you with me? Jesus is saying to you today, I want you to repent because there's something much worse than the hurricane that's going on around you in your life. And it's a place called hell. If God works in all your circumstances and that's not taken care of, nothing he did here matters for you. If... It just amazes me. In all of this miraculous story... Jesus calls the man to repentance. It's always about repentance. Now, if God ever does work in your circumstances, this is where you've got to get here. If he ever does heal your body, your relationship, your marriage, your job situation, your family, if he does, he does so not for your circumstances. He does so so that you'll trust him for what is most important. Are you with me? He does so... So that you'll trust him for what's most. He does so, so that you will see that there's something much worse than whatever he was dealing with over here. And this is what's most important. And if you are a believer and he does so, he does so not for your circumstances, but so that you'll give him the glory. And in so doing, point other people to him as Savior and Lord. If Jesus heals you of cancer, don't spend the rest of your life thinking and saying that that's the best thing he's ever done for you. Because it's not. The cross was the best thing he's ever done for you. (laughs) 
Not that being healed from cancer is not a miraculous thing, but don't make that ultimate. The cross and your salvation and your eternity with Christ is ultimate. Now, now here's where it gets hard for me. Because I think of Brian. Because we have to ask this question. What about those that are in that place of brokenness? You've trusted Christ for your salvation. And the circumstantial healing never comes. What if your situation never changes? And... I would ask you to consider our Savior in the Garden of Gethsemane. Luke 22, 42. He's in the Garden and he's praying and he's sweating blood. And in verse 42, he says, Father, if you are willing, remove this cup from me. Nevertheless, not my will, but yours be done. We have this, I think, a very grossly mistaken image of Jesus as a prim, proper Baptist. It's not the Jesus I know. My Jesus was a man's man, not afraid to throw it down when he needed to, and not afraid to get dirty when he needed to, and not afraid to show love when he needed to. This was not a quiet Shakespearean petition. This is a cry for mercy. Please, God. Please, Father, if there's any other way to accomplish this. If there's ever a moment of wishing that one's circumstances would change, it's that. To which God had to answer, no. There is no other way. Through this, I will bring glory to myself and make a way for every broken person Everyone in bondage to sin. Everyone that sin has separated from me and beat up and broken down and jacked up their life. A way for all of them who will trust me and know me and faith in me. A way for them to know me, to repent of their sin, to faith in me and to have a home in heaven with me for all eternity. There is no other way. Our Savior and our Lord could not avoid his own circumstances, though he had healed others' circumstances. We can't think we're higher than our Savior. And, brother, sister, there's, there's just no way to wrap this up in a nice, neat little theological bow. I just can't. There's no way for me to pack this up in a nice little God box for you to take home. And unpack when you get home and everything's better. I can't. All I can do is compel you, plead with you, and press you to trust Him. In the worst moment, almost the worst moment of Jesus' life, maybe His worst moment before the cross, Jesus trusted God, His Father. And I just have to plead with you. As hard as it seems, you just have to trust Him. And if you think you're alone, you are not alone. I promise you, there's somebody else in this room or in this town who's gone through what you've gone through and they've come through it by His grace. Christ could not avoid His own circumstances, though He had healed others. And, and so I want you to trust Him. I want you to trust Him first and most importantly. 
for your faith and your eternity. Because again, if that's not taken care of, nothing in your circumstances will ultimately matter for you anyway. Because what Jesus said, there's something much worse than whatever you're going through. Trust him first to faith in Christ for, in forgiveness, for forgiveness and repentance and faith. Second, second, trust him in your circumstances. Very important statement. Listen to me. Trust him to do or to not do what he sees fit. And that is not easy. So what do we do with this kind of stuff? Some of you just simply need to trust Christ today. You need to, you need to give up the pride and the rebellion and the, and the, and the religion and the, and the fakery, and you need, to, you need to give it to Christ. You may have a life that's pretty normal, and therefore you might not have seen much of a need, but I hope that something in this story has been able to pierce your heart and help you see it. You need Jesus if nothing else, please understand right now that your pristine little world could come crashing down with one tragedy, with one phone call, with one accident. On that day, here, look at me. On that day, you will need something more than a nice retirement plan and a comfortable life. Ultimately, you will leave this life Perhaps 50 years from today, perhaps today, and on that day, not one circumstance that has happened in your life will matter. Only one decision. What did you do with Jesus? Some of you are walking through very, very difficult times. I know that. And this is why this last part of this is so hard to even say. Your situation has become so dire. You, you can't see past today. You can't see what will happen right after church. You may have even asked God, begged God to fix your life, but you must come to understand something. This God is not concerned ultimately about your happiness. He's concerned about your holiness. Whatever He does or does not do in your circumstances is not about your circumstances. It's about your heart. You must, please, brother, sister, trust Christ. It's hard when you when you pray and when you pray and pray and pray for God to heal your father physically and God doesn't do it. I was looking at my wife, by the way. Wherever you stand, in situation or in circumstance, I know, I know that there are some of you today that are not trusting Christ completely. You are not trusting Christ who laid down his life for you and therefore can only expect the something worse. You can only expect condemnation. So I'm going I'm I'm to plead with you one more time. Brother, sister, friend, lay down that rebellion, that arrogance, lay down that hurt and that resentment. Lay down that sin. Lay it down. And simply believe. Faith in. Embrace the gospel of Jesus Christ, the good news that he was crucified 
for your sins. He was raised on the third day and reigns on high now and wants to work in your life. But you must place your faith in Christ and His work on the cross for forgiveness of your sins before anything else that God may do in you or through you will have any real meaning for you. Forgiveness of sins. Being made whole, complete, sound, a right standing with God for Him to really do anything else in your life comes freely through Him alone. By faith through grace in Jesus Christ alone. Trust Him today. Father, this it's kind of this kind of stuff is, is hard. Lord, I thank you, Father, that even though we unpacked it, you, you point straight to the cross, to our ultimate need. And we do have people here, Lord, that have great circumstantial needs in their lives. Tremendous, overwhelming, that push us to the place to want to say, what is the point? Father, help us to see that those things are not ultimate. Those things are not the end. Those things are not the most important. They are not the paramount. The cross is, and our need for you is. Help us, God, now to get the most important thing to become the most important thing, to trust you. First as our Savior and then with our circumstances. Help us, Lord, because this is not something, for many of us here in this room, this is not just not something we can do on our own. We need you to work it in our hearts. We need you to speak through brothers and sisters in Christ here today to encourage us to trust you. So help us to do it now, to respond in faith and repentance and trust. In Jesus' name, amen. Trust him today. If you need to trust him in faith, Brent's going to be down front. Do it now. If you need to trust him in your circumstances, first, make sure that you have trusted him in faith as Savior and Lord. Then come and trust him in your circumstances. My friend Brian's faith has been very, very shaken. But it has not been broken. You know why? Because many years ago, my friend trusted Christ and was changed. And he knows and is learning even now that whatever God does or does not do, in our circumstances. It's ultimately not about our circumstances. It's about our heart. And He wants you and us to trust Him. Trust Him now. We stand and you come.